glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. When we first get baptized, it's, uh, how, many, how many of us understand as anything in the faith when we, when we grow, we, we have a better understanding of it along the way? It may have been 20, 30, 40 years ago for some when you were baptized as a new believer, but for any one of us, whether 5 or 10 years ago or 20 years ago or recently, it is good for us to go back and be reminded of why we do what we do, not only for our own purpose, but in dealing with other folks. How many of you have met people that believe baptism is their means of salvation? We all have. And so in witnessing many times, understanding baptism from the biblical perspective is a tremendous opportunity to give someone the gospel because of their misunderstanding or having been mistaught on the subject. So for each one of us, it's valuable to be refreshed on what God has to say. I I dare say tonight's message is not exhaustive, but I do think it's clear enough that uh, it can help us just have a good, clear understanding. We'll look at a threefold aspect or, or look at baptism from a threefold uh, way, uh, stating baptism is, and we'll look at three different things that from the Bible baptism is. So stand with me if you would as we read Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And then we get done there, we'll be going to a number of places, so have your fingers ready. So Matthew chapter 28, beginning verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. This is, of course, what we call the Great Commission. It's never called that inside the Bible per se, but it's what it is where Christ commissions us to go and preach the gospel. How many of you, when I say the Great Commission, immediately what comes to your mind is evangelization? And certainly that is part of it, but it's one-third of the Great Commission. You'll hear somebody say the local church exists to fulfill the Great Commission, and that's an absolute true statement because our job as a church is to go into the world, preach the gospel to them, and then upon their belief of the gospel, we are to baptize them as believers And then upon baptism, teach them as baptized believers to observe all the commandments of Jesus Christ. It's what we call discipleship. Uh, Discipling people is simply teaching them to obey the Lord Jesus Christ in every facet of life. And there's an order laid out here that we see followed throughout the New Testament. I love when God gives us patterns. God is a God of order. And there's a pattern. And this pattern we see established in the Great Commission is the pattern that the early Christians, as you find it documented in the book of Acts, follow. They go and preach the gospel, the message of salvation. When someone believed, then they would baptize them. Once they were baptized, then they were added to a church, and in that church setting, they would learn and serve. That is the pattern. Read the book of Acts. I encourage you. It's the pattern over and over and over. And so I spoke on Sunday morning of how we... how we establish temperance in our life from the principles of God's word. One of the things we have to, we do as we get the knowledge that informs our temperance is look at patterns in scripture. There are commandments and then there's patterns. And so one of those patterns uh, surrounds baptism. We call it a believer's baptism. 
And the reason we have to distinguish it that way is there are those that teach baptism of unbelievers. They'll baptize infants or they'll baptize uh, uh, folks that are not necessarily believers in order to add them to a religion. But in Scripture, you'll never find anyone but a believer getting baptized. Baptism does not precede belief. It follows it. And so we'll deal with some of those things tonight. So the first thing I want you to see tonight, I'm going to keep it very simple. I'm going to try to keep it as... Uh, as, as timely as possible, Acts chapter 8, verses 35 through 38, a well-known text on the subject of baptism. And these are not in chronological order, but in an order that I think will help us uh, see what baptism is. And so, baptism number one, if you're keeping and taking notes tonight, is an expression of faith. It is an expression of faith on the part of the person getting baptized. We understand in Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God makes it very clear. Eternal life, being saved, is a gift. Verse 10 goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. I find it interesting that some would say baptism is part of our salvation because clearly baptism is a good work. It really is. It's something we do. It's, it's a good work, but we know good works do not save. Jesus, when baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist said it's not, and I'm going to paraphrase, it's not becoming that I would baptize you, but that you should baptize me. And Jesus said it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. This is a righteous act, and he said it's right to do this. And it's right for me to set that example. And so we understand baptism is not a means of salvation. It is an evidence of salvation. It is not a tool or a, it is not a sacrament as the Lord's Supper is not a sacrament. It is not a means of grace. It is a demonstration of grace. It is an expression of one's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's where we see this. Acts chapter 8. Verse 35, and this, we're cut in on this text. It's where Philip has preached the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Bible says, Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture. That would be Isaiah chapter 53, by the way. And began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest. That's faith. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so here is where we get the concept uh, this, from this text of Scripture as well as many others that baptism is the believer's expression of sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I dare never come to this text without mentioning this. If you're reading tonight, if a person's reading from a Revised Standard Version, you'd come to verse 36. He would say, uh, see, here's water what hindered me to be baptized. And it would scoot right on down to verse 38, and you'd have a number 37 in your Bible and no verse. I mean, understand that's what happens in a Revised Standard Version. There's a number 37, no verse, and then you go on to verse 38. Verse 37 is a key verse to understanding baptism from God's perspective. And so it's no accident. Some Bibles, some new translations have the 36 and then they just go to 38. I mean, you would pass your children in math if they were counting by ones. 34, 35, 36, 38, 39. 
you don't skip a number, right? My point is this. This is obviously a key verse, uh, and this is one of the major problems we have with the newer translations and the text that underlies them is this verse missing there because it's so key to understanding. And it doesn't, it's not a standalone verse. You can find many verses, as we'll see in a few minutes, that demonstrate baptism is a believer's baptism. So number one, baptism is an expression of faith. Notice three things about the faith that's expressed here. The faith that when Philip says to the eunuch, if thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest, is not, it's not abstract. This is a sound faith. When he asked him, if thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest, what's he asking him if he believes? What had Philip just preached to him? The Bible says he opened his mouth at that same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. So baptism is not a general expression of faith in something. It is expression of faith in the scripture that reveals Jesus Christ. It is a faith that is founded on the Bible. There are baptisms today that simply represent the faith of a denomination. Ours represents faith in scripture, the scripture that reveals Jesus Christ. By the way, faith in scripture is a sound faith. That's a faith that's unshakable because this isn't changing. The Bible's going to, you know what, Acts 8.37 is going to say the same thing after I'm dead and gone as it says today. The next generation can preach Acts 8.37, it'll say the same thing if they're using God's Bible. (laughs) Amen? Amen. The point is this tonight, the faith that's expressed is a sound faith. It's a faith that's founded on the revelation of the written word of God. Philip didn't simply preach the Jesus he had experienced. He didn't say, let me preach the Jesus that has given me great revivals up in Samaria. He opened Isaiah 53 that the eunuch had, and from that scripture preached unto him Jesus. Meaning the eunuch believed that Isaiah 53 was revealing Jesus Christ who had raised from the dead, and that was where his faith was placed. It was a sound faith, which very clearly was a specific faith, as we've already noted. It wasn't simply a faith in the Bible in general, but it was in faith in the the Christ of the Bible, the Christ revealed in the Old Testament and in the New. And so then look now, if you would, 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. How many of us understand that the world has created a Jesus that's different than the one revealed in Scripture? Absolutely. There There is a Jesus being preached in the world that's not the Jesus of the Bible. He is a, he is a Jesus that has a different character. Uh, I, I met a woman one day. I asked her, I said, do you believe Jesus had ever sinned? Well, another man was with me at door knocking. She said, yeah, I would imagine so. And she was a religious woman. I said, whoa, no, no way. The Christ of the Bible never sinned. He sinned less. And so Philip's, or the eunuch's faith that he said, I believe. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest believe what? Believe what the Scripture says about Jesus Christ. First John chapter 5, verse 9. I love this text of Scripture. It says, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Baptism is an expression of this. I have put my faith upon the person of Jesus Christ who is revealed in the Bible. 
That's what baptism, an expression of faith. Number three, it's not an expression of a sound faith, of a specific faith in the person of Jesus Christ, but of a sincere faith. Meaning, we're not, we're not saying something simply to join a crowd of other people. We're not simply lightly going along. The Bible says, Philip says, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, It's not feigned faith. If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. It's not pretentious faith. It is, no, I sincerely and truly believe that what God says of Christ is true, that he was my substitute. By the way, how many of us realize Isaiah 53 is about the sacrificial, substitutional work of Jesus Christ? That's what the eunuch believed. He believed the same message we believe, that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the one who was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, meaning that eunuch believed that Jesus' death was for the eunuch's sin. When he said, I believe, that's what he meant. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the context of Scripture that was preached to him. And it's the same thing for us. I believe that Jesus Christ suffered in my place for my sins. I believe he raised from the dead. I believe God's judgment for me was satisfied in what Jesus Christ did for me. It's an expression of a sincere faith. Let me read you a number. I'm a little rapid fire here. So if you can't keep up, that's fine. I just want to establish a pattern in the book of Acts, which is where the church is being established. And uh, what we find as a pattern in Scripture is, number one, no unbeliever is ever making up a church. Churches are made up of believers. Not only so, they're made up of baptized believers. That's the pattern of Scripture, amen? And that's what constitutes a church. Baptized believers assembling together in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the simple definition of a church. Acts 2.41 says this. Notice the pattern here. It's only always believers getting baptized. It says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Who, re- who was baptized? They that gladly received his word. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Look at verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. You see the great commission fulfilled there? They heard the gospel preached. They gladly received it. Then they were baptized. Then they continued hearing the apostles' doctrine. That's the teaching of the the Great Commission to teach folks how to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that same order we saw in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. So Acts 2.41, it's believers that are baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Acts chapter 8. It's not those who reject the gospel, but those who believe the gospel who are baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. The Bible says... Uh, But when they believed, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. How many of us understand the word when denotes order? When they believed, then they were baptized. When they believed, and it's again that sound, specific faith that that the eunuch has later in the chapter, when they believed, then they were baptized. Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, we find Lydia. The Bible says it's after the Lord had opened her heart to the preaching of Paul, then she's baptized. It says in verse 14 of Acts 16, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken by Paul. Verse 15, And when she was baptized and her household, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. 
and she constrained us. Again, you find a believer, someone who attended to the things preached and spoken, whose heart the Lord had opened. That happened before baptism. It is for this reason we know that infant baptism is not biblical baptism. It's for that reason, because an infant can neither believe nor reject the gospel. And so it's believer's baptism. So baptism, number one, is an expression of a sound, specific, sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, baptism is an explanation. It's not only an expression, but it is designed by God to be an explanation of salvation. It is a a figure, as Peter would call it, of salvation. It's a picture a figure, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6. I love using this illustration, uh, but I'm going to use it again tonight. And so if I pull this out and I ask one of these people here, Vin, I need you just to help me a little bit. Who's that right there? Actually, it's not. It's just a picture of me. You see what we did there? But you know what? It's an accurate picture enough of me that she could tell who it is. Right, Baptism is an accurate depiction of salvation. It is a picture or a figure of what took place the moment we trusted Christ. The moment we trusted Christ, the Bible says, calls it the washing of regeneration. The moment I trust Christ, the Lord Jesus, because of my trust in Him upon His Word, He speaks to me through the Bible, through the preaching, teaching of His Word, uh, uh, through the reading of his word, he speaks to me and shows me that I'm a sinner in need of a savior, that he is that savior. When I respond to the promise of salvation that he's made by faith, he gives me the Holy Spirit, placing me in Christ, washing me clean, burying my old sinful self and making me a new creature. That happens instantaneously. It's called being born again. It's regeneration. There's a growth that takes place after that, but it's instantaneous. Baptism is a picture of that. And so let's read Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. I wish we had time to read and go through the whole chapter. We don't. But Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? He's writing, by the way, to people who've been their believers and they're baptized. He's helping them to understand what God did for them when God saved them. I want to be clear. It is possible to be saved and not fully understand what God's done for you when he saved you. It is possible to be 100% saved but not clear on what God has done. You know how we know that? Paul is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God to people who were indwelt by God's Spirit, had believed, had been baptized, but had not quite got a hold of what exactly God had done for them when God saved them. It's like this. You've been living in a prison cell all your life, and one day somebody walks in and said, Would you like to be free? Would I like to be free? Well, of course I would. They say, I've got the key. That ain't the key. And they say, it is the key. And they unlock the door and they say, now, if you want to be free, you can be. And they put it and they lock it back. Now, do you want to be free? The person says, well, of course I want to be free. And they accept the offer to be free. That prison cell is a picture of sin. We are bound by the law of sin and death. But Christ died for us and he has the keys of what? Death and hell. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is greater than the law of sin and death. And that key Jesus has, and when he's preached as we believe on him, he unlocks the door of our sin cell. How many of us know you can be free, but someone has to say, look, here's what you're supposed to do with your freedom. Stand and walk out and follow the one who unlocked your door. If you and I have lived in bondage, it's possible to have our cell door unlocked and not fully grasp what just happened to us. So Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we sin more and more because God is gracious? 
Verse 2, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now, verse 3 is speaking of spiritual baptism. What took place when you got saved? You were baptized into Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death that like, notice that word like, as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That old man means our natural man, the sinful man that we are by nature. Knowing that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we also shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. You're talking about some verses that establish eternal security. How many times did Jesus have to die for your sins? Once. Once you've placed your faith in that death and resurrection, there's no need for anything else to be taken care of. And our baptism, you know why we don't get baptized every week? Because it pictures salvation. Do you know why we take the Lord's table repeatedly over a year year span? Because it pictures fellowship. Communion is what we call the Lord's table, and it pictures the way we walk because he saved us. So communion is taken often. Baptism need be once as a believer, for a believer. If a person was not baptized with believer's baptism, they ought to be baptized biblically. But it pictures our salvation. Here's how. Number one, as we go under the water, of course, that pictures Christ's death and burial for our sins. Just like he died for our sins once, we place our faith in him and his death becomes ours dealing with our old man. And our old man is buried like a seed in the ground, put down like Christ was buried. So our water baptism is a picture of what Christ did for us spiritually, took our old sinful self with him, buried him with Jesus in the grave, and raised us to a new creature, just like he came out of the grave alive. So it's a picture of the gospel, yes, but a picture of the salvation that God accomplished in us when we believe. So it's a picture of the sacrifice of Christ for our sins by his burial. It's a picture of the sufficiency of Christ to save because he's alive. And by the way, we'll say this again and again, you cannot picture planting. How many of you say, I'm going to plant something tonight, and I'm just going to do like this. I plant potatoes every year, and when I plant potatoes, I bury them. You know what? That's, that's, what sal- that's why we baptize the way we do it, to be an accurate portrayal of salvation. Our old man is dead and buried. He's been dealt with once and for all, Hebrews says, through the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, the sufficiency of Christ to save us from our sins. A dead Savior can't help anybody. But because the Lord Jesus raised from the dead, he has the power not only to deal with our old life of sin, but to give us new life and righteousness. I'm telling you, the gospel is glorious. It's what it's called, the glorious gospel, because my guilt is dealt with through the death of Christ. My fear and incapability is dealt with through the life of Jesus Christ. He died for me dealing with my sins. He lives for me to enable me to live a righteous life. One of the most intimidating things in the world is to look at the Christian life, look at the expectation of our Savior and say, how can I live that? We're going to get to it in a minute. Baptism is the first step of obedience in the Christian life. 
It is, it is an embarking on a new life. That's our third point. You can look at that new life and say, man, God tells me to love my enemies. He tells me to rejoice evermore. He says to be thankful for all things. Who in the world can live that life? Jesus Christ can. And the fact that we haven't lived it makes us a sinner. That's why he died. But the fact that he did live it makes him the Savior, and we can live it by him. You realize when God saved, the moment you trusted Christ, you said, you know what? The Bible is right. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior. I believe God concerning Jesus Christ. When you believe that in your heart, enough to turn to Christ and call on Him to save you, He did it. Once and for all, He gave you new life. And when He did, He gave you whose life? Yours or His? His life. You know what kind of life He has? Eternal life. His life never ends. You cannot exhaust the life of Jesus Christ. You cannot suck Him dry of His resources. That's the whole point here. Salvation is a settled thing once God saves you. So it deals with the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, the sufficiency of Christ to save us, and the saving work of Christ for us. Look, if you would, at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Baptism is explained here, and it can be a little confusing if we don't listen closely to what God has to say. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. This is a text for a long time kind of baffled me until I just got to think about just exactly what it says. 1 Peter chapter... Isn't that something? I'll just take the Bible for what it says. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which were sometime disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved. If I were writing this, I would say saved from water. Wouldn't you? If you were describing the flood, wouldn't you say God used the ark to save them from water? But God said he saved them by water. How did God save Noah and his family by water? We'll explain in just a moment. It says in verse 21, the like, what's the next word? Help me now. Figure. Meaning, Noah and the flood is a figure of salvation, and so is what I'm about to describe to you. The like figure. The flood and Noah's ark is a picture, a figure. It's not literally salvation. It's a figure Even so, the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. He's very careful to explain. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. So not water washing your sins off of you, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. And then it says, by the resurrection of Christ. So the like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So Noah's ark and the flood is a picture of salvation or a figure. Baptism is a figure of salvation. Then what can we learn if this salvation, if baptism is an explanation of our salvation, how in the world were Noah and his family saved by water? Let me ask you something. Let's just start with, what was the water? Why did God send that flood on earth? To do what? To judge sin. God sent the, it was a flood of judgment. There was a corrupting sin and a corrupting culture all around Noah and his family. And you know how God saved his family from that sin? He judged it with water. 
Now, you know how we're saved from our sin? He judged our sin in Christ. Even as Noah and his family were saved from the sin around them by the judgment of God, we are saved from sin by the judgment of God. Just like that water, you know what it did? It purged the earth of all that corruption. You know what the blood of Jesus Christ does for us? The same thing that the floodwaters did for Noah. It purged his world while he's in the ark. Every, he, is, he is submerged in the waters of the flood and the waters of that flood washed all that filth and corruption away. But you know what? Noah was safe in the ark. God poured out his wrath and judgment on Jesus Christ. But in Christ, our sins are dealt with, yet we're saved. Does that make sense? Like the waters of the flood judged the sin and Noah and his family are safe in the ark, even so the judgment of God, the chastisement of our peace was on Christ. But by faith in him, he took the judgment for us, purging us and purging our consciences from sin. So they were saved by water. God judged the sin without, de- without destroying Noah and his family. Not only was the sin of the world dealt with and Noah was spared in the ark, but when Noah and his family came out, guess what they came out to? New life. When they walked out of that ark, nothing was like it was when they went in. Does that make sense? They were submerged, even as you and I are submerged in the death of Jesus Christ, our sins are completely dealt with in Him, completely paid for, completely judged. He tasted death for every man, and He was judged in our place. And when you put your faith in Him, it's like Noah walking inside that ark and the door closing behind Him. And yet when we come out of the resurrection, out of that, you know what the, you know what the ark was? It was a grave. Was it not? But they came out alive. You and I are submersed in Jesus Christ and in so His death and the judgment of God that was put on Him becomes on our account and that just as Noah came out of the ark and there was new life, we are in Christ and given new life. I believe that's exactly what Peter is saying. Just like they were submerged in that water and it was like a resurrection when the door was open and they walked out into new earth, even so in Christ our sin has been dealt with, God has judged it thoroughly and we are in Him new creatures and we come out to a new world, a new life. And so then baptism, water baptism, it's a picture of all of that. It shows how in Christ our sin has been dealt with through His death and His resurrection. We are raised to walk, as Romans 6, 4 states, in newness of life. Let me I say this. What happens if you trust Christ and you never get to obey Him in believer's baptism before you die? Everything we're describing took place the moment you got saved spiritually. Bible Again, Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration. When does that take place according to the Bible? The moment you trust Christ, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost which He hath shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. When we get baptized, we are expressing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. We are explaining our salvation. We may not fully... When I got baptized, I didn't understand all of this. But you know what? It was the truth of it. My obedience demonstrated what God had done for me already. It was already complete. Number three, it's not only expression of faith, an explanation of salvation, but it's also an embarking on a new life. Romans 6, referring to... Uh, the fact that we have been, we're saved by grace and we're baptized into His death, we are raised to walk in newness of life. Baptism is that first statement to say, because I'm a believer, I'm willing to obey Him. 
because I'm a believer, I'm willing to identify with his death and resurrection openly and unashamedly. I'm willing to state I believe he died for my sins and I believe that was sufficient to pay for my sins and I believe that he's given me new life, whether I feel it or whatever. I believe him enough. I'm willing to express it with a good conscience. It's an answer of a good conscience toward who? Toward God. Toward God. It is one's expression of faith and therefore it is the first step in that newness of life. It is, a, is the embarking on new life. Second Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a... No, we need to get a hold of that. It doesn't say, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he should try to be a new creature. Amen? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Your old sin nature has been fully dealt with. Behold, all things become new. You've been given new life, and it's eternal life. And so then, it's an embarking on new life, baptism. Number one, is a step that recognizes the finality of our salvation. That our sin and our salvation is fully accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ, which we've already explained fully. But when we take that step, we are recognizing that our salvation has been completed. Again, verse 4 of Romans 6, Therefore we are buried with Him, to our identity with Christ. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Hebrews 7.25 says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. You know what the uttermost means? Completely. To the fullest extent. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that that come unto God by him. Why? Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. What makes the gospel glorious is the fact that you don't get dunked under and stay there. Aren't you glad baptism is not, we put you under and hold you? I'm glad. None of us would be here. <laughs> I'm glad baptism is and put you under, but then you come up. When we, got, when we believed on Christ, yes, we, we, our sin has been dealt with, but we are made new, and so it is a recognition. My salvation, I've been saved to the uttermost because of his ability to save so that's number one. Number two, or letter B, it's an embarking on a new life in, in rejoicing in the fact that we have forgiveness of sin. It is a rejoicing in the forgiveness of our sin. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of his grace. I believe is how that verse goes. So we have forgiveness of sin. So baptism, because we recognize the finality of our salvation through the sufficiency of Christ, we are rejoicing in that by our obedience. Letter C, it is reckoning. It is a step, a first step in embarking a new life because we reckon that our freedom has been given us from sin. I no longer have to serve my fear, doubt, and unbelief because I'm saved. Church, if I could get us with the help of God to get a hold of any concept right now, especially for all of you young folks, to realize when God saved you, whether you feel like it, whether you know it fully or understand it completely, He literally and fully set you free from the power of sin. And the Bible says we must reckon that, meaning it's on your account, but you have to make an account of it in your own conscience. Meaning when God saved you, He gave you the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He liberated you from the power of sin. But how many of us are living below our privileges? We have been given freedom and we're not executing that. May I encourage you, baptism is the first step saying, you know what, I don't have to live a life of sin. I am free to serve God. That's what Romans 6 is all about. Romans 6, 11, likewise, reckon. 
Reckon is, a, is an accounting term. It's what we mean when you balance your checkbook. Uh, you, you, you who are getting a tax return, uh, prayerfully you're getting a return. If not, you have to pay taxes. Either way, you're going to have to do some reckoning, right? You have to do some reckoning. But let's say you're getting a return and you say, you know what? I know I'm supposed to get this amount and your checkbook reads this amount. And one day you open your bank account on your phone or your computer or your statement. You go, whoa, where'd that extra money come from? Well, it's time to make a reckoning. The reality is you had more than you thought. Maybe somebody gives you a gift. And uh, if you're this never happened to me. My wife at times has opened up sock drawers or coat pockets and found $20 bills. I never find money. Never. I sometimes dig through her coat pockets, but I don't find it in mine. But you know what? When she reaches in a coat pocket and finds a $20 bill, all of a sudden she reckons I had more than I thought meaning it is an accounting of what we truly have on our accounts. And the Bible says, Romans 6, 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. You make a reckoning because you've trusted Christ. Sin has no hold on you. You're dead to that. It can't control you. You're dead to it. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Verse 12, because of this truth, let not their sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of right, unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You realize the unsaved person cannot stop sinning just because they want to. They don't have that freedom. But because Christ has saved you and me, if we're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, He saved us, The Apostle Paul's writing to say, you need to understand the freedom you have. Now you are responsible to make right choices because you can. This is called the law of liberty. You're free to do right. If I'm free to do right and I won't, what is that? It's sin. Therefore, to him that knoweth the good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And tonight, baptism, it's the first step that, that states, as we obey in this step... I am reckoning in my conscience I am no longer a slave to sin. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of God. I'm a servant of righteousness. Verse 17 says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. So this is the gospel. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as ye have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now, now you're a new creature, now yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, now, as believers in Christ, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. You know what saying? You are free to live a holy life. Do so. Use your freedom and serve righteousness. And so then the fourth thing we see, it's an embarking on a new life that recognizes the finality of our salvation, rejoices in the forgiveness of our sin, reckons our freedom from sin and our, our capability to do right, and renders ourselves as servants of righteousness rather than servants of sin. What did Jesus say in John chapter 8? I believe it's verse 36. I believe that's right. 
If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. There's nothing... You know what? Sin doesn't free you. So it says, I'm free to sin. No, we're bound to sin. We're bound to sin. But once we're saved, we're free to do right. Amen. Isn't that a glorious thing? And tonight, you and I, who may have been saved for some years, even baptized for some years, what a reminder of what our baptism stands for. It is the first step. By the way, shouldn't we just continue to make a succession of those steps? That's called the Christian course. The race we run is a succession of steps recognizing my salvation is complete. I rejoice in the forgiveness of my sins. I reckon that I am free from sin. And so I'll render myself to God to be used for His purposes. That's the Christian life. Baptism is the first in those steps. Amen? So it's an expression of faith, an explanation of salvation, and it is an embarking on a new life. It is walking in newness of life. It's a picture of, I was a sinner bound for hell. Now I've been forgiven, and I'm on my way to heaven. I'm going to live for God. That's it. Amen? I hope that makes some sense to us tonight.